0: Let's say we were to go to Justin Library, our Library for the Performing Arts here at Smith College, and that we wanted to consult a book on the history of ballet, most of those books will describe this linear development in which ballet travels through Europe within different countries flourishes in the Soviet, well, not in the Soviet Union, back in the days was Russia, uh, but then uh, crosses the Atlantic to the Americas and it flourishes in the United States in Canada as well. Uh, But primarily those histories will focus on the United States and look at figures like Balanchine, for instance. What those histories do not comprise is how ballet has proliferated in many other directions. So with the research that I do on the National Ballet of Cuba, I want to shine a light on how ballet has become truly an international dance forum, and hopefully push our analysis, our scholarly analysis of this genre beyond that Eurocentric model or Anglocentric model that has prioritized the study of ballet in Europe and in the United States. Already in the 19th century, there were many European performers who were traveling to Havana, because Havana was one of the largest cities in the Americas at the time. It had some of the most lavish theaters as well. So these were dancers that would come to tour in the United States, and because they were already on this side of the Atlantic, they will continue to Cuba. It is not until the beginning of the 20th century that Cuba starts to develop its own ballet. And we don't really see a boom of ballet in Cuba until 1959, when the revolution takes power and Batista is overthrown. Before that, a few important figures have come out of the pre-revolutionary period in Cuban ballet, and those were the Alonso, Alicia Alonso, who was a prima ballerina with Ballet Theatre in New York and with Le Ballet Russe de Monte Carlo, a company that toured all over the United States. And then we have the Alonso brothers, Fernando, who uh, had been a professional dancer too in the United States, but became a very strong teacher. And the other brother, Alberto Alonso, who also had sustained an international career and became known as a choreographer. So we have this trio of very important figures, a prima ballerina, a teacher, and a choreographer. And that is the foundation for developing a new company when the revolution decides to fund ballet. In the case of ballet in Cuba, for instance, you have to wonder what's going to happen with this dance form that before the revolution followed an elitist model. It was um, performed for the people who could afford going to the opera house to see ballet and now you are in a new context in which the revolution is pushing for accessibility to the art. So something happens is what I call the proletarianization of ballet. And that involves several things. On the one hand, it means that um, the National Ballet of Cuba undertakes a program of um, outreach that consists on the one hand of lowering the tickets for ballet performances, of offering a lot of free performances on public squares, on stadiums. But also, and this is very interesting, the company starts taking Um, groups of dancers to places like farms, like factories, like military units, so that people who had never been exposed to ballet, they could actually see ballet firsthand. And those were very powerful outreach initiatives. When when we look at ballet, those narratives of doing heroic work, of being dedicated, of being selfless, they are in the DNA of these dance forms. Therefore, ballet becomes um, uh, an art that symbolizes in a very clear way what is the work ethic that the government is expecting of revolutionaries. This is a period of the revolution in which the government asked everybody to engage in manual labor, even if you were an engineer, even if you were a physician, even if you were a teacher, you were expected to volunteer your work in agriculture. So at the time you will see that uh, ballet were also participating in agricultural activities. If you look at stories from the 1960s and up to the 1970s, you will be surprised to see these articles in newspapers and in magazines that will announce that ballet dancers were going to be performing Swan Lake but they were also working on in the countryside helping with the agricultural duties that uh, were so essential to the Cuban economy. Therefore the dancers uh, are able to refashion themselves to shed the image of ballet dancers, of ballet as something that was insubstantial, of little consequence, that was escapist, that was a form of entertainment, that was irrelevant to reality because the stories of ballet had to do with fairies, or with dolls, or with mythical figures. And they reinvent themselves as workers of the revolution. Also, if we look at the type of choreographies that are being created during this time, we notice that this happens even in a more direct way, that dancers were performing in fatigues. They were performing the roles of soldiers who were in the trenches defending the revolution. Or uh, we could look at other ballets in which dancers are paying homage or tribute to the leaders of the revolution. So these are some of the ways in which we see this ideological alignment between ballet and the revolution. One of the uh, most revolutionary aspects of this new government is that it wants to eliminate racial discrimination in Cuba. Within weeks of taking power, Fidel Uh, announces to the country that uh, racial discrimination had had to be eliminated. It is one of the first ballet companies in the whole world that becomes racially integrated at a time when in the United States you might have the American Ballet Theater and the New York City Ballets, uh, for instance, that were completely white for the most part. And then you had the Harlem Dance Theater, which was a company company, predominantly of black dancers. Uh, You had a model in which there was no integration, but in Cuba, you get to see early on, a company in which you have dancers of all skin shades. Ballet becomes a visible example of how racial relationships were changing in the country. And one of the most striking examples of this is in duets in which you have dancers of two different skin colors performing an erotic story as those from Swan Lake or those from new ballets that were being created at the time. So we are dealing here with something that had been a huge taboo since colonial times in Cuba. The issue of uh, dancing that was racially integrated, but also that was evocative of uh, miscegenation and of intermarriage, of interracial love. So it is significant that ballet was able to achieve this. Of course, uh, there were many other ways in which racism was not overcoming Cuba during this period, and those were also reflected in ballet. One, one instance, for instance, that continues to be a debatable point until today is the fact that black male dancers were able to move up through the ranks of the company, but black ballerinas, not so much. There were not as many black ballerinas in the ensemble, and to this day, there has not been a principal dancer in the National Ballet of Cuba who has been a black female dancer. So obviously there is still a barrier there. I think that what we see is how uh, there is a clash between, on the one hand, this drive to racially integrate ballet, but on the other hand, we're also seeing this, uh, the conservatism of a dance genre, in which the ideas of beauty are still modeled by uh, European images of swans, of fairies, of princesses that correspond with an idea of whiteness. So that has not been resolved yet. Uh, but there is ongoing discussion of these issues in Cuba, so we will see in which direction we are moving. And of course, it is long overdue that the company diversifies, not only at the lower ranks, but all, to, uh, all the way to the upper ranks, and both in the case of men and women. So the relationships between the ballet and the revolution are not always smooth and one point of contention is the issue of machismo and how it intersects the prejudices about male participation in ballet. Many of these dancers that had been trained before the revolution, they, they were gay and by the mid 1960s uh, we leave this traumatic period in Cuban history in which the government decides to target homosexuals as the type of citizens who were not compatible with communist ideology or with this utopian vision of what a revolutionary man should be so we see internments in labor camps uh, we see a lot of persecution, people who lose their jobs, particularly artists, because artists were associated with homosexuality. And in the case of ballet, it is more acute. They felt uh, under great threat. So in 1966, the company Travels to Paris. It's the first performance of the National Ballet of Cuba in Western Europe. It's highly significant. There was great anticipation about what was going to happen. Uh, so the performances were a great success from an artistic point of view, but 10 dancers, 10 male dancers of the troupe, Defet, They don't go back to Cuba, because they felt that if they returned, they were going to be uh, uh, the object of persecutions. With the new uh, migratory situations between the U.S. and Cuba, Um, we see once again that ballet becomes an arena in which the conflicts between the two countries or the new alliances that are being created are being played out. When we look at ballet companies in the United States, If you look at the cast, you will realize that there are Cubans in most of the uh, ballet companies in the United States. This, on the one hand, speaks to the very high level of Cuban dancers. The the school of ballet in Cuba is rated among the best in the world. Since the 1990s, with the economic crisis in Cuba, there has been a, a great motivation for dancers to leave the majority of the dancers, what they have been doing is defecting. Now this is going to become more difficult because last December, before leaving the White House, President Obama ended one of the migratory policies with Cuba that had allowed Cubans to actually come to the US border and request political asylum. And those requests for political asylum were, were seldom questioned. Now there is going to be more questioning of these requests. Therefore, an answer coming from Mexico or from Canada trying to arrive to the United States is not going to have it as easy as they uh, were until only a few weeks ago, so it's impossible to see what's going to happen.